Welcome to episode 8 of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about game design and game designers. In each weekly episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work, and their outlook on games. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson. This episode is hosted by me, Stace Harmon, and features Dan Pinchbeck, co-founder and creative director of The Chinese Room, developers of Dear Esther, Amnesia, A Machine for Pigs, and Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. The Chinese Room was founded by husband and wife duo Dan Pinchbeck and Jessica Curry. As writer and composer, Pinchbeck and Curry have led their studio to BAFTA wins for Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and helped to define a genre with Dear Esther, a title that started life as a Source Engine mod. That latter title was in part a response to Pinchbeck's frustration with Games Academia of the time, which he felt was too preoccupied with the theory of game design and not enough with the practical application of ideas. He's kept a foot in the academic world thanks to his position as visiting lecturer at the University of Portsmouth and ongoing discussions with PhD students. And that's where we kick off this week's hour-long chat with discussion of the Chinese Room's ties to the world outside of the day-to-day running of a successful indie studio. Later in the episode, we talk about the delivery of story through gameplay, the danger of de-skilling over the course of a long project, and Pitchbeck's frustration with the heavy focus on frame rates and the technical minutiae of game creation. First, though, we start with him talking about the joy of public speaking and keeping a hand in the wider discussion surrounding game design. I did a keynote for um, uh, a conference called The Philosophy of Computer Games um, last year in Malta, which is really interesting. It's the first time I've been to an academic conference in uh, years. And it was really it was really great, actually. I really enjoyed it. I was a bit kind of um, a bit nervous at first because I'm so feel so de-skilled in that area and sort of language changes quite a lot and I was like, you know, they could be a sort of like, who's this bloke coming in? <laughs> they can't reference the same philosophers and stuff. But it was really fascinating kind of like listening to a lot of those papers again. And I've stayed, um, I'm visiting a professor at the University of Portsmouth where I used to work and I've kind of been in there and talked to the students. Um, and I kind of have, I've got running conversations with a few people that are doing PhDs on sort of areas that are kind of as kind of tie into the sort of stuff that we do. So yeah. I'm directly involved, but I think part of the, I, the remit of the company, I guess, part of the kind of uh, what we have always wanted to do, both Jess and I, is go in our lives outside the Chinese room. We've always gone, do we enjoy what we do and are we able to kind of like follow what we're interested in? Mm. In a weird kind of way, I mean, we kind of got lucky with the Chinese room because we found something that we really love doing together and, and actually we've been lucky enough that we've been quite successful doing it. But before then, you know, we were both kind of artists and both kind of just you know, spent most of our lives completely penniless, kind of like just doing the stuff that interested us. So I think we're always going to keep those kind of outside interests from, from doing the game dev anyway because it's, it's you kind of it's nice to be in a position where you can go. Hey, I'm interested in that. I think I'll I'll kind of look at that. I started writing a novel the other day, which is really interesting. Oh wow! Uh, I'd written a couple like years and years ago and didn't do anything with them, so they weren't very good. But I thought, you know what? Actually, I kind of fancy just doing a bit of writing now. So yeah, it's nice to be able to do um, just sort of follow your nose a little mm. bit. I'm you, sorry. You've clearly not got enough. You've got not not got enough to do, Dan. I think that must be. I know. Well, that's, I think part of the problem is that. Games are so complicated and they take so long to make that you've always got more ideas than you'll ever actually be able to make in a game. And because you kind of like you're looking for partnerships and investments and things like that. So I sort of was looking at some stuff and going, this is a really, really good story here. I don't think that's ever going to get, it's never going to make it as a game. I don't think we're going to get this thing 
together and there's other games which are ahead of it in the food chain and by the time we finish making those I'll probably have thought of something else so do you know what I just write that as a book um, so yeah that's uh, my, my huge amounts of spare time that I have that's yeah <laughs> how does that work in terms of you have an idea for a game um, I presume for it to turn into a novel even a, even quite a short novel it would have to be kind of massively expanded so is that how how, sort of how much have you been playing with that the idea that was a game that could now be a novel like how much do you have to uh pad that out or how much more detail do you have to go into in order to get however many thousands of words it needs to be to be a to be a novel i think well i mean i think we generally always start with worlds anyway and characters Mm. so we don't start from a position of going look, okay, well, we've got this, you know, this core kind of gameplay loop, and then we've got to find a way to make, you know, we're going to evolve and change that gameplay loop over kind of like six to seven hours, and we get all those things mechanically in place, and okay, now we need to start plugging the kind of the story and the world in around that. Um, We tend to, the very, very first idea for, for it tends to come from, we've got this great idea for this person or this world or this kind of like concept of of what might happen, Mm. and then, the kind of me- mechanics and everything else is designed kind of grow out of that. So in a kind of way, really, it's, it's, I think provided you've got enough material in that initial concept, then you shouldn't have a problem doing it. I think really, I've just finished um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which is, mm-hmm. I think, probably the best AAA game I've played in certainly months. I mean, it's really amazing. Mm. But what's really, one of the things that's so amazing about it is the stories. It's, you know, there is, it's, it's certainly, it, it's not just, an action movie mm. in, in kind of there. It actually has it has much deeper the kind of references it's making. It really they really understand their sort of sci-fi history and they're playing with much bigger and deeper themes than you'd normally get in, in those kind of games. And you can kind of easily see of kind of going, okay, well yeah, I mean you just kind of like you you you've kind of reduced the amount of times you kill a robot dinosaur from sort of like once every ten minutes to it happens like three times over the course of it. There's certainly enough story there in Horizon Zero Dawn to make a really, really good novel. Mm. And the writing is is really good as well. Um, so, yeah, I think those kind of traditional kind of translations, I think, are probably, in, in a weird kind of way, they're falling away, I think, as the kind of quality of writing and stuff comes up in games. I think the thing which is always most kind of frustrating being a, a game writer is that um, it really limits you in terms of ambiguity and kind of abstraction, which is actually what the talk I was giving in, in Malta was about. It was about saying, like, Lovecraft, like, how do you mm. represent Lovecraftian kind of, like, mythos in a visual format? Because the whole point about Lovecraft's writing is there's these massive gaps in the descriptions that just let your imagination go crazy into mm. them. They're really contradictory and really kind of... They just don't make any sense. Um, so actually the idea of being able to write a, a novel and go, do you know what? Actually, we're free from having to fully know any of the answers to these questions is because it's much more about like the way in which your imagination is engaged and you're visualising yourself mm. and uh, I'm a huge massive massive fan of um, China Miyagel's work and um, so there's um, one of his, his this, this, I mean it's a brilliant novel I should read anyway called Embassy Town and it features these kind of this, this alien species and I was reading it and I kind of had this real kind of moment of epiphany halfway through reading it when I was reading it as if I knew what they looked like, and I realised I had no idea what they looked like, but it didn't matter because I had a vague form, and you can't do vague forms in games. So that's really exciting from a writer's point of view, of going, I can, go, I can be really vague again and just hint at something and then let the, you know, pass that over to the, to the kind of reader. You can, 
you know, there's all kind of different way of engaging imaginations that I think is is kind of it's really exciting. Well, the talk that you did were there were there any sort of surprises that came out of it, either com- conversations after it or or any any kind of uh, ideas of to, as to how you could represent that kind of um, fairly um, ambiguous or or non visual. Uh, ideas or themes in what is a very visual medium was there kind of any i suppose any solutions or any 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 threads to follow that came out of that talk last year i think i think some of that stuff i think the big one for me is um that we i mean there's the i think it was ian the ghost who coined was it ian the ghost who coined the term cinema envy or certainly used Mm. the term envy a lot and I'm not actually necessarily sure that's true for the majority of games. But I was sort of saying about one thing that, you know, an art form that we never reference when we're talking about games is poetry. And poetry is like a really, really interesting sort of structural model to think about in terms of how it presents a series of images. And it's like the ripples, like dropping um, stones in a pond, the ripples which are created and the way those ripples interrelate. It's just about the power of those images. It's not about going, there has to be this through line of plot. Mm. It's about saying this image continues to work with me and to be there in my head while I'm doing this thing. And then another image hits and it's how those things play off against each other. And actually there's probably, that's got as, as a closeness with, with games that is at least as much as kind of like the closeness that cinema has with games. But it's, it's kind of, we tend to, you know, kind of default and say, oh, it's a, you know, it's like an action film. And you kind of go, we look at it and sort of say it's like a poem in the way that it works with this. That's, that's kind of interesting as well. And that sort of makes us start thinking about image as being the dominant thing of going we're not just talking about visualization we're talking about visualization that has to um kind of inspire a question or kind of like infers or has these kind of um ah, i'm trying to the right word suggestions that are made by it and suggestions really really powerful because then the player rushes into that space and starts imagining and dreaming and that's what again i think horizon does so well is it doesn't it presents you the kind of the story of how the world fell apart, but it also just gives you time in these enigmatic ruins to just soak up the concept of like, you know, you'll be in a, in a space and you'll have the sort of like the plot thing going on, but the, the data log you pick up is someone opting for voluntary euthanasia mm-hmm. because you can't emotionally deal with what's happening. That's, so, I mean, that's really powerful, proper writing because when you're then exploring these incredible kind of spaces and ruins, you're not going, Right, I must go to the green room to collect the red key. On the way, as you're thinking, oh my god, these people starved to death here, and some of them decided they prefer to take a sleeping pill. Mm. But they have this message for their family to explain why they've done it, or they already knew their family were dead, and they were, and those are human things. Those are human images which are powerful because we, you know, we kind of we can really understand those. And the really important, powerful thing about that, I think, Gorilla got so well, is that humanizes the rest of the game as well, so it stops being just this kind of background with big, shiny, glossy machines and nice weapons. It's got all of those things, but you also care about the world, you're invested in it. I think the other recent game that did this so unbelievably well was um, uh, Machine Games, Wolfenstein The New Order, where mm-hmm. it's a completely um, kind of world-class shooter, and you're going through it, it's like, ah, oh, it's all shotguns and blah, blah, blah. I haven't played about halfway through going, geez, I really care about these people. And then it elevates to a whole other kind of level. So that's, I think, that's something which I think is has been a real, maybe quite subtle, but a huge change in, in gaming over the last sort of few years particularly, has been this sort of antagonism between story and game that's, that's kind of, you know, still kind of 
spatters around here and there. But I think actually what's happening is an awful lot of companies, both indies and you know some of the biggest companies in the world, have just been quietly, quietly, seamlessly integrating this kind of knowledge and going. Now, there's no reason why we can't have a massive kind of huge, epic, bombastic 150-hour, whatever it is, but you should still care about the minutiae and the detail in that, and it's okay to have kind of diverse, proper characters and kind of like, you know, deep, serious themes and that. And that's just, it's just gently happening. It's kind of, yeah, it's not the big deal it was. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that. I think with, with Horizon um, particularly, I remember playing that and thinking, I think people are going to be surprised by this because they're going to come to it assuming they already know what it is and then you can kind of tell that there has been some form of post-apocalyptic thing going on just from the you know the marketing images that have been released just from the way that the game's been talked about in the run-up to release. But then when you get into it and the depth, like you, like you say the, the depth of the writing and the the story that goes alongside it not so much kind of the the story that's happening in the here and now to the central character of Aloy but the the story that that happened you know whatever it was a couple of thousands tens of thousands of years ago I can't remember what the uh, the timeline is but the and the thing that I I suppose the one point on all of that that I felt personally was a bit of a if not a shame a bit of a um uh, it would have been nice if it could be done in a different way, was that that story still had to be delivered in that kind of tried and tested way of of data logs or uh, voice recordings or text logs. And it that you, you sort of had these areas where you just had these big exposition dumps where you'd pick up several of those in quick succession. And it was like, so this is the story bit, and now you go back outside and... and like you say, it gives you time to digest that because you're then running around these ruins and it, it kind of you you can um, take that in. But it just felt a shame that there wasn't a, a more dynamic or more satisfying way to deliver that, other than you now have to sort of sit in the menu and read this text log for a few minutes. And I mean, I, I don't know if that ties in anyway in any way to the the talk uh, that you gave. I don't know if those themes came up in, in kind of not just the how do we um, put across these ambiguous ideas? But how do we do it dynamically? How do, you know? How do we do it in a way that is better than what we've currently got? Um, yeah, I mean it's difficult. I mean I kind of I I'm not sure how because I mean you you kind of there are ways of you know you're delivering story when you're when gameplay is story when you're you know mm, for sure yeah the actions that you undertake are telling a story. Um, I think there are some things which. You know, you, you, you've got kind of, there are, in a way, kind of like limits to how you kind of do that. I think what what tends to be, I mean, it's, it's an economy thing as well, right? Because, I mean, mm. okay, well, partially, you've got environmental storytelling. And the environmental storytelling is, is, is pretty good in Horizon. It's difficult to do kind of detailed environmental storytelling on somewhere which is that old because everything disintegrates. And, mm. and it, um, But also, you've got, you know, you've got a a finite asset count and you've got performance things to hit and you can't, I mean, it's really interesting, I played um, Edith Finch the other day and I was sort of slightly jealous of going, my God, there's a lot of assets in here. But then, you know, they're loading up each room as you go into it, it's not open, which means you can go literally, I'm going to deload everything else and then I re- reset my asset count for this space. So you can just chuck, you know, you can chuck hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of assets at a room because it's a very small space, there's hardly any draw distance mm. um, and you can deload it and load it as you come in and of course you don't have that 
you know, I mean, Horizon is packing in a vast volume of assets anyway. And in a perfect world, of course, yeah, it'd be lovely that you kind of, you know, you would you'd be taking the contents of those data logs and then you would be, each data log would then be kind of split up and spread out and kind of sprayed into a room. So part of the story you'd be getting from the data log part of it, which is the shelf here or the way a poster kind of peels or the fact that, the, you know, the, the two bodies on the bed are, you know, were holding each other like a kind mm. of thing. But there's also, you know, there's, there's kind of, there's practicalities to it as well that I think are often a lot of the limit. And you are always making those kind of choices. I think not just with games, but with any kind of uh, creative form, you're saying, yeah, that would be nice if. Like, we literally, we ran out of asset memory in Rapture. We kind of got to the point where we couldn't more assets in the game. And you go, yeah, it's a shame that, you know, we've only got two bikes in the game. And they might be different colours, but we've got a BMX. <laughs> but frankly, we can't put any more in here because... Mm out of time, we're out of money, and we're out of space in the game. So we're just going to have to do it. I think there is a kind of a, you know, you kind of have a tolerance of that as a player. And sometimes you do get games where, you know, it's really it's difficult when you can see an asset being used over and over and over again. And, it, you know, it can be something which kind of leaps out. But I think probably the biggest impediment to sort of breaking out is it's, it's an economic thing of going, we really want to tell this bit of backstory about these characters. And... We've kind of got a choice here, you know, you can, you can either, we do it as a data log and you have this sort of stuff, or, you know, I can give you the, um, you know, I can, I can, I can tell that bit of story and I can do it, but I'm going to need another 150 assets, which means I need you six minutes off this bit of world, mm. have a knock on then to saying, then that's going to throw this balance out here and this sort of thing. And that kind of, that cascading set of consequence, which is, which is always the, the kind of the first, last and always of, of game designers is, it really is the kind of, um, you know, you, you, you pull a pin out here thinking that it's going to have nothing and then realising sort of like it just cascades gently in the background mm. and wipes out a huge chunk of something else somewhere else. And that's why I think, you know, I've been talking with, with, with people quite a lot about the kind of, I think now I've been in sort of, I guess, in, in game development for a few years, just the increasing volume of just vast respect I have for kind of like producers and project managers, particularly people working on those kind of like really big projects where you kind of go, we are managing like, you know, 150 people over three years to make something which is absolutely vast. And it's all about consequence. It's all about saying when you're kind of like working at the coalface saying, yeah, but I'll just do this. I'll just make this change. Or that would be the optimum way of doing it. And those people that can sit at the top and say, yeah, that's good for you. But these 30 people over here, you've just completely destroyed my work just by asking what seemed like really, really, you know, kind of like simple questions. So mm. in terms of those those things, in terms of logs and things with storytelling, I think it's, there is an art to the balancing of how many those are and what content's in there. I think they'll probably be with us for a while yet mm. because they are a really, they're a very efficient device for delivering depth um, and efficient economically in terms of production as well as in terms of actually being able to deliver that in, that kind of information. But I think definitely it does come back. There is definitely a thing about ambiguity. And again, it's, it's, it's one thing that I do think Horizon does pretty well of going, no, you don't get to know everything. We're literally, we're dealing with the tips of the iceberg. It's your job to deal with the iceberg in, in terms of mm. imagination. Mm. Is that, is, is the, um, do you think you're more sensitive and, and perhaps more, um, aware of these things as a games designer as a creator yourself not not just in terms of games as you mentioned it happens in other mediums as well but is that are you more able to see the matrix as it were you're more able to kind of see 
the, the bits that have been constructed and you can you can kind of get a feel for why certain things might have been done, why certain things have been left out or put in. Is that something that you found is a um, a, a talent or a, a vision that's been honed over the last few years of you of you creating games? Um, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't know for a start if I was more sort of aware of it than people that don't work in games. Mm-hmm. So... Super media literate. I think what I think definitely as a person individually, yes, I see it more. I understand more about design having worked in design, and I understand more about design having been the head of a studio where I'm also responsible for things like budgets and staffing. Mm. So I'm definitely much more savvy to going, yeah, okay, I can understand why that that looks that that might be a concession there. But I can understand that that's probably because actually the alternatives, you've got all these kind of factors coming into it, which are which, which make it sort of a non-viable thing. So definitely I see, I can kind of see that more. And it's, it's um, I have, you know, my, my kind of levels of respect are, you know, kind of increased kind of like daily kind of looking at stuff and going, OK, you can see how historic problems are being solved. Mm. in ways that are really kind of like remarkable you know it's, I think it's really interesting you only have to go back a few years to like say you know the first Assassin's Creed where you have those big blue walls and they were there and the whole kind of <laughs> story of the animus kind of being created to, because you couldn't do it technically mm. um, and then it's really interesting like the history of kind of like the Assassin's Creed games if you look at the modern ones now and it just feels like such a for me personally it feels like such a clunky thing the whole animus stuff and the past life and that because it feels like it was a it was a really elegant story solution to a technical problem that's now being solved okay. uh, but watching you know i mean you could take the assassin's creed franchise as a macrocosm of just watching all of these incredible technical problems being solved and then how design kind of works around where the technology currently is through that series and i think just you could look at that as a, an incredible way lens to view kind of like modern gaming history in terms of how those things have been done mm. definitely you, you 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 have i think when you work in the industry you, your respect for those disciplines all the disciplines really kind of like goes up as the more kind of knowledge and understanding you have of of you know what are the specific kind of particular challenges of coders in, in different kind of areas you know you kind of go oh okay right and i think things like the one place where i, I kind of I feel, I guess, sometimes frustrated in terms of the dialogue which goes on around games. It's stuff like frame rate. People going, I want 60 frames. (laughs) You really have to get your head around just how unbelievably difficult this is. And, you know, for, I mean, say for us as a a relatively small company going, are those extra 30 frames a second worth the concessions we have to make in terms of, say, like the amount of assets we can use or the drawers or the log pops or stuff like that where, does it make that much of a difference? Isn't this about experience? And that's, you know, so there's stuff like that where you're kind of going, I think it sometimes isn't clear how difficult it is to even get basic stuff up and running. And because we've now got amazing tools like, you know, we work in, in Unreal, like Unreal makes it so easy to do so much that you can get to kind of like a, a good level up relatively quickly and easily without huge volumes of skills. But it gets, you know, the, the pyramid gets thinner. You know, you, you kind of have to 
making the difference between a game and it being sort of like 98% good and 99% good is, is infinitely harder than trying to game between 35% good and 65% good, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think those things are, it, it was like all the stuff that kicked off recently about the sort of the frustrum culling thing that was flying around Twitter, where actually a lot of, you know, gamers were going, yeah, well, we didn't know this stuff, actually. That's really important. I think we, we can still do maybe a little bit more as an industry to kind of go, Look, this is how, this is what you do when you're making this game. I think particularly with stuff like Consequence going, um, I did a talk at a school the other week and, and like with kind of um, 13 year olds and was going, right, all I want you to do is we're going to just do, imagine you're going to walk along a corridor and open a door and we're going to try and break this down into every single thing that has to be in place in order for that action to happen. Mm. And little things like going, well, someone's got to tell the floor that things can stand on it and, you know, go down into those levels of detail going, shit, actually, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm less tolerant of people going it's a shit game because I kind of go well I'm pretty sure the developers who made it were very very smart passionate people who did their best and it doesn't always work but there's very few people making games that are making them cynically there may be more cynicism at a business level in some places I don't know but certainly the people actually making the games they're, they're usually working incredibly hard in an incredibly tough job and it's very easy to kind of attack it and shoot it down and say it's not good enough or why didn't you just do this and yeah you kind of have to go if if you're thinking why didn't they just do this you can pretty much expect that there was a very long and painful conversation in the development house that led to why it wasn't done yeah and I think that's that is something that um, although you do hear a lot of talk particularly over the last few years um, with things like perhaps Unreal and, and Unity of course as well and and game maker and people talking about like the the tools have become the proliferation of tools has become much more widely available it, it there's there are many more tool sets for people to use and and so because of that people it seems the conversations tend to be around the fact that games are easier to make now than they ever have been but that that doesn't that rarely um acknowledges that that doesn't mean that they are an easy thing to make like you know in the same way that you could say writing a book is an incredibly easy easy thing to do you just sit down and even if you don't have a computer you just need a pen and paper so theoretically everybody has the tools to write a book but it's it doesn't really allow for the actual the nuances and the detail like you've just mentioned you know telling a what is going to be a flaw telling it that things can stand on it is is just that doesn't things aren't explored in that um that detail and we tend to have this drive towards a much more technology driven conversation about you know why isn't it 60 frames a second or how many you know gigabytes has this next machine got or how many how fast does it go how many horsepower is it etc etc i'm being slightly facetious but it's it's it, the conversation seems to be driven down those routes um i mean is that do you think there's an, an inevitability about that that people and in general, and, and you know, to an extent, we're all guilty of it. If you're going out to buy a new TV, you want to know what the resolution is. If you're going out to buy a new car, you want to know certain technical specs of the car. Um, is it just an, an easily identifiable, easily categorised uh, conversation that we can have that we're, where we're com- comparing like for like and we're all kind of on the same page? Is, is, do you think that's what sort of drives those conversations? I think so. I mean, you know, it's still the games industry is... It's, you know, it is a technology industry. It's, it's still underlying the kind of, you know, we, as players, we're kind of at the thin end of the wedge in terms of visibility of it, but underlying all of 
things is patents and, and, you know, software advances and hardware advances. And, you know, we've got, you know, a new chip which runs 30% cooler than the last one. You know, this is, that's the, the bedrock, really. I mean, it's, it's a bit, I guess, to make a really, really bad analogy, kind of like we're, we're sort of like trying to craft um, kind of a, a, an entertaining walk through a forest. And we're kind of going, you know, birds, trees, and this one flies over at this point. But actually... We're sitting on kind of like, you know, four miles of crust and it's sediment and it's got hundreds of years of history and all this sort of stuff. And someone's building that, that bedrock. And that is still very, very technologically driven. So it's going to have a huge influence on the way in which we define things as well. And also, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's to a kind of an extent, it's kind of being honest about the fact that we are also talking about toys and, you know, you love all the toys. And, you know, this one's got a flashing light and goes beep, you know. <laughs> And, you know, I know myself well enough that I can kind of go, yes, yes, poetry and all this sort of stuff. But I'm still sort of like there with my jaw hanging open slackly going, "Ooh, I can do this. I've got a microphone and a controller and, you know, this sort of stuff. And it's, you know, that is part of the kind of the draw to it. I think it, 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 we tend to over talk about that. Yeah. Do we talk about that at the expense of quality? I think that can happen. Yeah. I think mm. for me, it's kind of. Again, running at 60 frames a second as opposed to 30 frames a second is absolutely meaningless unless there is a an absolute kind of qualitative difference in what those extra 30 frames give you. And I think in some games that can be, you know, if you're doing something that's sort of, you know, if you're doing like, you know, kind of an online shoot or something like that or something that requires a huge amount of visual smoothness, yeah, it can. I think for the majority of games, it probably doesn't have any difference at all. And actually, it's irrelevant. A well-designed, engaging game that runs at 30 frames a second is better than a fairly well-designed game that runs at 60 frames a second. The experience is what really matters. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like, you know, you can you can have a TV the size of your house, and if you just watch shit on it, it's still going to be shit. Um, but <laughs> that's not saying that we should all, you know, but if you put a really great film on a postage-style TV, you're not going to be frustrated by that as well. But this, mm. you have to go, you know, it's a, it's a technology industry, but it's also a media industry, and I think it's, for me, what... I care about is, is am I enjoying this experience? And it's a similar kind of conversation to the game length conversation, which goes around and around and around again. It's worth going, you know, is it, does it matter if a game is a hundred hours long if a significant proportion of those hundred hours are padding? Would it be better if the game was 50 hours long? And then, you know, other people feel very, very, very strongly that that, that, that the, the scale of games is a, is a fundamental point in how they set game quality. And it's, you know, different people, want different things and I think one of the things that we you know is never going to be solved in games in a way that I guess it's probably never going to be solved in any other art form is reconciling some very very vigorous kind of arguments of, of what people want from different sides of it and um, you know for me I don't I quite like it if a game is either short or can be broken up into short chunks because I'm you know I'm a middle-aged dad and I don't have lots and lots of time and I like to be able to sort of get onto the console and get off it but so for me probably the biggest change to my gaming is completely a technology hardware solution which is rest mode so I can hit one button and be straight back in the game and I don't have to load it each time I play it I mean that's that's made a huge difference to the amount I play because I can just a game like Horizon or the new Doom, I don't have to wait. I can just be literally one button in console boots up and I'm in the game. So if I want to play for 20 minutes, I can do. And the game design is such that I can be in and out of it in 20 minutes and, and enjoy it. And that's much more 
um, important to me than saying this game is 100 hours long because I probably will never get to play 100 hours worth of game. But that's because I'm coming from a very particular place and other people are coming from very different places and, you know, they have, you know, their views. My, my take on it is no more important than theirs. Welcome to the Indie by Design podcast halftime show. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. This hardback book, written by us, Stace Harmon and John Robertson, gives a peek behind the scenes of game design through original, interview-based written content, alongside pages of compelling artwork, concept sketches and design documents. The book features more from the Chinese room, along with Dean Hall, Denison, Lucas Pope, Adriel Wallach, Devolver Digital and many more. Go to IndieByDesign.net to get your copy. On our website, you'll also find more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast. If you have suggestions, questions or feedback on the podcast, you can tweet us at Indie by Design or get in touch via facebook.com forward slash independent by design. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, that would be very much appreciated. On to the second part of our discussion with Dan Pinchbeck now, and we pick up the conversation with Dan explaining how the Chinese room almost made a multiplayer rapture, and how a title the studio currently has in development started life as a pen and paper RPG. Well, I mean, I guess there's a couple of things on that. I mean, one, interestingly, we did talk about multiplayer with Rapture. Okay. Uh, we had quite a serious conversation at the beginning of the game about whether the, the other characters that you see in the game wouldn't be AI-driven, but would be other players. So you could be, you would only see yourself as, you would see other players as the balls of light. And so you have people guiding each other around and showing stuff. And the reason that we didn't want to do that is because it felt there was a much more powerful story about those being those core characters in them and you being able to identify that is Wendy, that is Frank. That felt like there was a much more powerful emotional kind of thing to, to mm. but yeah there was a conversation at one point about going, you know, what if we, we could have, you know, six people in this world at one time, you know, because that could be interesting. I think it just never felt like it was the the way to go with it. Um, mm. I think you know we don't we we've never kind of gone. This is this is a place. This is there is this, and we ought to try this one. This that's point. We just kind of it generally comes from saying that we've, we've had this idea and we want to do this. So what's the best way of doing it? Mm. So you know, kind of like um, game designs that we're, we're, we're prototyping at the moment are um, like we've had the um, Total Dark, which um, is, uh, you know, we've, we've been cell phones, been working gently around in the background for the last year, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a sort of cross between a stripped back RPG and a, and a survival horror, and it's changed a lot over it. The mechanics have changed. It went from being a very, comp- it went from being a board game initially. Yeah. Uh, paper-based RPG, then we started putting it on screen, and then we sort of dropped some of the stat stuff and introduced more of a sort of a, a kind of resource management element to it, and all those things, and it's, it's kind of, it's because it felt appropriate for what the game needed. Um, and we've never, I think, had a concept that's felt like it needed multiplayer. Mm. You never say never, you know, it's not something we're kind of going, no, we don't do multiplayer. Um, it's just not been felt like it was an optimal thing to do with, with where we are at the moment. Mm. Um, I think, yeah. sort of, but I mean, in terms of, of um, sort of stuff, I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, like, Jess and I sat down and, and played Finch together, you know, at the weekend, and, and kind mm-hmm. of was... That was kind of a us playing a game together. It didn't sort of require a space. But actually, I play like you know, I, I like playing Destiny with my son. Um, don't get a lot of chance to do it or sit down and play FIFA with him. But I think the other really important thing, and I've 
sort of rambled there and completely lost my train of thought in a like <laughs> is I think there was a very, very, very big separation. I think it's a really important separation that the games you like playing and the games you like making um, do not have to be the same thing and mm-hmm. not to be a very good thing if they're not the same thing. Like I, you know, I, I, I'm a huge shooter freak. I love first-person shooters. I'm not sure I want to necessarily make a first-person shooter. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, and it's, we sort of say, when we talk to sort of like students and young people going into the games and you're saying, just be really, you know, be aware of this, separate this stuff out because if you say you're an artist, you may love going into kind of like really super fine detail and making incredibly detailed, beautiful, lush kind of things. But, you know, maybe you like playing mobile games and that's okay. But, you know, what you should be saying in terms of as, a, as, as somebody who works in the games industry is, do you get, you know, do you get bored easily? Do you want to spend six years on one game? If you don't, well, then you ought to be thinking about mobile. You get a much faster turnaround. Do you want to work for, you know, something where you're iterating on a particular level? Do you want to work on a company that tends to work franchises? Do you want to work for somewhere that kind of like tries out new IP and stuff like that? I mean, those those kind of questions about what you like doing in your working life and what you like making as a creator are completely divorced from what you like playing as a gamer. And you can certainly be inspired by those things. And I'm totally kind of always pulling in inspiration and thoughts from the games I'm playing. But I also kind of go, when Jess and I start, you know, talking about a, a new, new title, we'll be going, what do we want to make here? And how do we want to make it? And what's going to be something that we're going to, you know, we're going to enjoy doing as much as we're, we're really focused on trying to make something that other people will enjoy playing. But we also, it's kind of important to go, do we want to make this thing? Um, I think we're not a company that does it for them, you know, that goes, this is about making, you know, as much money as possible. I think if it is, then we're doing a really bad job of it. <laughs> not making the games with a huge amount of money. Um, but we're quite happy going, look, are we, are we sustainable? Are we successful enough that we can kind of like look after our people and have the freedom to be able to make the things that we want to make? And that's quite a privileged position to be in. Um, and I don't mm. take that for granted at all. And, you know, that also may not be the case always. You know, it's not a given that just because we've had a couple of successful games that we will be successful in the future. And you've always got to be a little bit, you know, maintain, um, a kind of like a healthy and smart humbleness about it and go, you know, we're just, a, we're just a business doing the best we can. Um, mm. We're not like, you know, it's why I've never, I can't stand the kind of like the, the sort of like the rock star shtick in gaming of going, you know, you know, at the end of the day, we're just, we're just a bunch of people making a, a kind of an entertainment software product um, and doing the best we can with it. And, you know, that's kind of pretty much where your ego should end. Yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> That notion that you were mentioning there about the what you play and what you create can be completely different, and that's an important definition, particularly I think for young designers, or they don't have to be young, but people who are getting into the industry. Um, I, and I think you don't hear a lot about that side of it because I think often what you do hear is people saying, "Well, you know, we just wanted to make a game that we would want to play," which is a. Per- I mean, that, I'm sure that applies to. Well, I would hope that applies to any anybody who's making a game. If you're making a game that you don't want to play, then I'm, I'm not even sure how that how that how you sort of uh, separate those things out. How you still make a a good game that you you have no interest in playing. But that is the thing that's generally talked about that we're just making a game that we want to play. Um, and I think the the what you were mentioning there about it can be two different things. It is less um, less discussed, and I think that's an. Im- important definition to make because 
it means that you can branch out a bit more than you might otherwise. So, like you say, you love playing shooter games, but you wouldn't necessarily want to make one because of, well, various reasons, but part of that might be what just what goes into making one. And so yeah. it's a... Is that, you know, do you think there's enough kind of conversation, again, particularly for people who are looking to get into the industry, for, for younger uh, younger gamers who have aspirations of being designers? Is there enough of those kind of frank discussions happening in and around and this probably goes back to the academia point as well but in and around those environments is there sort of enough honesty in you have to think about these things before you get into games it's not enough just to say oh, i want to make a game you have to think about kind of the the longer term implications and um and yeah where you want to end up will determine kind of perhaps what you're doing right now. Is, is there enough of that kind of forethought and, and planning um, going on? Yeah, I don't I mean, partially, I think that's sort of the question of probably kind of would taps defer to kind of like the people that are running HR for companies that see a lot of graduates through their doors. Because, I mean, we're so mm. small. I mean, I don't really have, you know, I don't know, I don't have the sort of exposure across to, to, to kind of like, you know, someone who's maybe sort of seen 150 graduates in the past sort of like three months while they've been recruiting. Mm, mm. I think... Making making a game that you would like to play is a really good place to start because when you're starting out, particularly for starting a company, that's that's kind of all you've got to begin with is your own instincts. And you are trying to develop, you know, particularly as a designer, a really important part of that is developing instincts of going, does this feel right? But I think there is, if you stop there with, I'm making a game that I want to play, that's when you can get into trouble because you're not going to be the only ones playing. You're asking other people to part with money <laughs> for something you've made. So they have to be, they're more important than you. You know, are you making a game that other people are going to want to play is a more, is the next step in the question from I'm making a game that I want to play. Um, and then I think if you've taken that step of gone, okay, well there's, there's I want to play this game, but then there's also understanding that other people want to play this game. I'm making the game for them, not myself. And I think that's the first sort of step of that ego surrendering that's really important. That, you know, you're kind of going, well, actually, your ego should be less important than the um, the engagement or the enjoyment of the people that you're making this thing for. Because, you know, why should they pay for your ego? Unless, you know, they want to. You know, that, that's if you're being honest and saying, hey, listen, this is just my ego trip. You can buy it if you want. People, you know, that's fine. That's great. That's a, it's an honest business relationship, right? But mm. if you... You know, if you kind of like doing that and saying, okay, well, look, I'm making a game that is for other people. I think more of the point is saying you may find that actually you're very skilled at doing something which isn't necessarily the game that you want to play. And although you started off saying, you know, I would really want to play this game. Actually, I found out that although I really want to play this game, maybe I'm not so good at making it, but I am quite good at making this sort of game. So even though I wouldn't necessarily play that myself, I seem to understand the people I'm making it for and how to make it an entertaining experience for them. And that's okay. That's a completely okay place to be. And that doesn't mean to say that you will put any less passion or creativity or care or diligence or any of those things into what you're doing. You're just making it for someone else, um, yourself. And that's, that's okay. Both of those things are okay, provided, you know, it's, it's honest. And everyone knows, and particularly, you know, in terms of you are going into a marketplace where you're asking people to invest their time and energy and money in something you've made, then you need to be, they deserve your honesty in terms of what it is that you're doing and what you're making. Mm. I think in terms of people coming out, I think I think hopefully most game courses 
even if they are producing people for specialisms, if they're producing like artists or coders or audio designers or gameplay designers, I would hope that they are giving them a at least a, a kind of like a one-on-one on how the industry works and saying, mm-hmm. listen, are you prepared for there tends to be a boom and bust model going on with a lot of studios until they're very well established and they can afford to keep their staff because, you know, a lot of the industry still runs on project funding, um, which means it's very, it can be very volatile. Um, and are you kind of aware of things like you will have to take responsibility for keeping pace in terms of, of, of not de-skilling while you're on a project, particularly if it's a long mm. You can come out at the end of a three or four year project and find out that you're unemployable because you've de-skilled over that project, so you've been on proprietary tech. Those are the kind of things which I think is really, really important that is being taught to sort of young people and, and graduates because that's not the sort of thing which is not a, a studio's responsibility to um, kind of make sure you're keeping your skills current, for example. Mm-hmm. They probably, you know, they may well not help you with that. And that's the sort of stuff that I think is, is, is pretty crucial that's being communicated of, do you know what the career progression from starting to lead is in this discipline? Do you know what's going to be expected of you? Do you understand how you can understand where your skills are relative to that and how you can develop those other things you need? And, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the job of education, as well as providing a safe space for you to understand who you are as a practitioner and to fail to fall over a lot of times, which, you know, is an important part of, of learning to be better is, is by screwing up. And the, the best thing, in, you know, in a lot of ways that a college or a university can do is it gives you a safe, nurturing space for you to learn from your mistakes that, you know, the industry can be pretty unforgiving. Mm. Um, the de-skilling thing, I think, is, inc- is really interesting. That's something that uh, I've not really heard many people talk about. It. And it's and perhaps, I guess, if you're always working, if you are one of those people that gets a job at a studio that is big enough to sustain its workforce for the entire for its entirety, just just you know, ad infinitum, then that's fine. But if you are project based, then like you say, there's a, a danger that um, you get lost in what you're doing. The it's something that we've spoken to other designers about who say that they're working on their own game. Um, Dean Hall was was one of a recent one actually making his own game with his his studio, but he still makes um, mods for other games. And he, in some cases, will teach himself a new skill set, a new engine, whatever it might be, in order to make mods for another game, which um, he says he does just for fun. But I guess that is part of that uh, keeping your hand in in various other other places. Is that something that you, not in terms of, not necessarily the mod side of things, but is that... Is it something that that you are able to do as a as a studio head? Is it is it something that you're able to kind of give time over to? I guess to what is effectively career development for yourself? Um, no, nowhere near enough time. I mean, I I, I try and I'm yeah. I'd, I'd love to say I'd kept current with, with Unreal. I kind of get in and I can do rudimentary level design. Um, mm-hmm. My blueprint skills are, are, are hopeless. I don't get anywhere near enough time to do that. I think the problem with being a studio head who's also kind of creative director is you, you are effectively, you know, you're trying to keep the game you're working on kind of up and you've got to sort of like working with the team and everything else to try and keep that running. But you're also sort of, you know, you've got responsibilities as wider things. So that time which you've got that you would be sort of doing those things for me anyway, you know, I'm, you know, I've got things like kind of HR issues and I'm looking at budgets and I'm, you know, sort of trying to line up 
biz dev for the next titles and all of those things. And that, that, that swallows huge chunks of time. And I guess because I'm a writer um, and I'm really, really heavy mm-hmm. the voice acting we do. So, you know, that, the, the time which I probably am, you know, more of a, a writer than a designer these days because I just don't get time to practically do the design work that, that as much as I'd like. But, you know, that's, that's a, you know, it's kind of a, it's also I'm aware that it's a choice I've made and it's, you know, there's, there's nothing there to, for me to complain about because I've chosen to run a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than, you know, if it was something where it was crucial to me that I was practically building and designing, I wouldn't have a studio this size and we wouldn't do the stuff we did. And, you know, but I, I kind of, I love being a creative director. I love the, the the fact that my job is so driven by ideas and is so driven by communication. It's about talking to all the different people in the team all the time about what you're making and, and looking at ways in which you can kind of try and make it better and have ideas to make it better. And that's that's a you know it's an incredibly fulfilling role that I, I still can't believe that I get to do because the idea of saying you know what do you do for a living? Well, I have ideas and I talk to people about them. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty that sounds like a made up job <laughs> it's wonderful and I love it you know I, I, uh, I get to do that so yeah you know, but I think you know I know that I've made choices about my practical skills as a result of that and, and yeah I mean I would be I, I'd kind of I built a lot of pigs um, when we made I did a fair bit of level design I did quite a lot of scripting um, I design some areas with, of, of Rapture and kind of like work very closely with, with Andrew, who's our lead designer, who's amazing, Andrew Crawshaw. Um, current game we're working on, I've, I've, I've not practically, I don't think I've actually put anything in the game. Um, hopefully with the, mm. the next thing we're working on. But then, you know, with, with, with Total Dark, I've been much more, you know, actively. Um, I've put together the high-level um, level flow. I'm actually, you know, breaking it down into paper-based designs for the levels at the moment. And I, you know, did a lot of the... Um, the kind of specking out on paper of the of the design systems in there. So I'm still sort of working at that kind of level, but in terms of, of practical stuff, no. But I mean, you know, Dean's, you know, got that incredible mix of, of kind of creativity and technical prowess, but it's, um, you know, he's a, he's a very impressive individual on that score. So. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you mentioned earlier, and you just mentioned it again there, that, that the, the kind of the, the paper prototyping for for Total Dark, and you mentioned earlier that it started as a board game. Did you mean a literal like physical board game, not a virtual board game, but an actual yeah, it was going physical to, board game. So it started off. So the, the initial kind of kernel of it was was going back to nineties um, RPG systems, mm. things like uh, kind of um, uh, brains for bring out stuff like Call of Cthulhu, Paranoia, um, mm-hmm. all those kind of things, and it started off as a system which was based on that. And then we had at one point, it was all kind of drawn out as kind of like a grid and it was kind of like a token-based thing. So, yeah, it was it was kind of, I suppose, more at the role-playing end of board game, but but certainly it was, it was the idea was to kind of create something that could run as a, you know, a digital game as well as being a board game and have that kind of crossover in it. And that seemed like quite a lot of fun at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of as it progressed, the kind of... We went, it's gone, it's gone through a lot of changes. It's, it's going to be a really, really interesting one to write about when we kind of go into full production because it's, you know, it started off, it was incredibly procedurally driven. The, the, the initial thing was, was all, virtually everything in it was, was procedurally driven. Um, and we kind of got to a point where that sort of fell away as we started feeling like it was, 
he kind of ran and the core gameplay loop was kind of interesting and all the procedural stuff but it just didn't feel like it had anywhere to go particularly and mm-hmm. and we started working on um the sort of story started developing and, and suddenly there was sort of a bit of a spark suddenly flew about going oh hang on a minute what if it was this and this really um fantastically crazy kind of story and world popped out and suddenly it didn't make any sense for it to be procedural anymore because we just went you know what, actually this is just this is this is really, really interesting in a way that procedural can't give us this. Um, and it sort of, it kind of drifted away from being something which would be like a digital board game with a real world analog to something which is going, no, this is, this is an adventure game now. Um, because we discovered through going through that process of it being a paper based thing and through the process of it being a procedural game, um, that's what helped us find this story and this adventure but when we found that we were like oh no this is what we've got to do this is this is this is going to be great this is this is an adventure we want people to go on mm-hmm. I, I, i'm slightly surprised i guess to hear that as a as a writer and as somebody that um clearly has a lot of story ideas you mentioned earlier that you kind of started uh writing a novel as well that you would i guess seriously consider procedural generation and that a lot of that is just because of my own um very basic understanding of how procedural generation and a strong narrative might might clash but it's it sounds like it's something you have given serious thought to was did you did you experiment in ways that you would still be able to tell a strong story through that procedural generation or or kind of was it a were they were they two separate things that the story became strong enough or so strong to a point that you felt that it didn't fit anymore. There was, you know, there was a story underpinning the procedural stuff and it was the idea, you know, was th- this idea of kind of like working with fragments and images. And in a weird kind of way that goes back to Esther. I mean, Esther's, you know, it's, it's, you've got, what, I think 40 script units in Esther, 40 script triggers, and each one of those is pulling one of four piece of script at random so there's already a, a kind of like a you know I mean Esther came from stuff like William Burroughs kind of cut and paste and that kind of mm-hmm. situation. but there's already a degree of kind of procedurality and that kind of way of writing already um, in a similar kind of way and that sort of yeah that, that kind of cuts up thing of kind of going well if we have these if we have these really punchy potent images like that's daring kind of Esther that we go well, we're just going to leave this here and actually how you join the dots and combine those into a story, that's the process that you go through as a reader. So if we present you, um, I think, you know, we had like units like, um, so we'd have like a couple of sentences sort of describing this and saying, you know, it's a, um, it's, it's an astronaut, um, mm-hmm. the body of an astronaut, he looks like he's fallen from a great height. And you just drop that into an environment. Mm-hmm. That's, there's a, a kind of a, a route for a story that the player can work with and you can work with those kind of images as well but what you don't get to do if you're doing that is go you know um, actually this is Bob and um, Bob fell out of a really tall tree while face now you can't do all of that but in a way that's kind of less interesting than just this image of just going well why am I finding an asteroid an astronaut who looks like he's falling from a great height I'm finding him in a school canteen that suddenly you've got something really powerful and amazing going on there so it was kind of looking at it from that point of view of going you know sort of so how can we have these images that might clash with each other or contrast or conflict or whatever it is but these images the combination between these things if you put that in a really kind of abstract mysterious world where you don't actually know what's going on provided you back away and there's sort of semi-procedural stuff as well you can say we can have control like every sort of like eight nine ten whatever story units is a controlled one, so we can start steering the narrative around, or we can theme that we are now in 
we're in the, 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 the kind of like the, the ruined town, but within the ruined town, it's procedurally placed. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily that everything has to be this complete utter free for all. It's just a way of going, can we kind of make this so we don't entirely know? And there was sort of the idea was that the systems were procedural behind as well. So the objects which were being generated, their relationship to the, the kind of the, the, the creatures in the world that were after you. All of their kind of features and, and things, they were all kind of procedurally generated as well. So the idea would be that you, you know, you could go back into the game and all of the knowledge that you had from the previous playthrough, you'd have to learn that all over again. Which was, you know, it was really interesting. It was, it was, you know, it's still something that, you know, we could well, could well do at some point. I think it just kind of hit, crossed the threshold with it where suddenly we kind of came up with this, this, this concept of this, um, adventure taking place on the inside of a pocket universe. And then we just went, oh, hang on a minute. This is interesting. Um, and it just kind of took over from there. It's quite quite an organic process with us, I think. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net. Follow Indie by Design on Twitter or drop by Facebook.com forward slash Independent by Design. Indie by Design podcast episodes are released every Wednesday. Our next episode features Jason Rohrer and will be available on Wednesday 17th of May. The music used in this episode is owned and provided by Ben Prunty.